Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 12. John chapter 12. If you would in your Bibles this morning. I do want to encourage you to be back tonight, 6 o'clock. Last week we started just a small mini-series on the book of Philemon. It's just one chapter in length, the book of Philemon, just before Hebrews. And uh, so last Sunday night we started that. Tonight will be the middle portion of our study, and next week we'll finish it. So it's just a three-week quick hitter, very small book. Um, Interesting, a very interesting book. I'll give you just a synopsis very quickly before we get to our text this morning. But Philemon was a man who owned a slave, and his slave Onesimus ran away. And uh, his slave Onesimus, in running away, and in those days in Rome, um, for a slave to run away like Onesimus did was punishable by death, uh, beating. Sometimes they would brand the slave. Um, if the owner decided not to press charges, he, might, he may be allowed to live. And uh, Onesimus, in running away from his slave owner, Philemon, uh, ran away to the city of Rome where he met the Apostle Paul. And Paul led him to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Onesimus believed upon the Lord was saved. And, um, but he was also guilty of breaking the law of his day. And so Paul sent him back with a letter, the book, the book of Philemon is that letter. And uh, he went back to Philemon, and Paul's message to Philemon was, forgive this man who has wronged you. And uh, it's a message very, um, though, though none of us in this room own slaves, uh, none of us in this room are slaves in that sense, as those two, two men were, the message of the book is forgive and love like Christ loved you. And there's so much application for every single one of us in that small book. So I hope you'll join us tonight, and we'll pick back up where we left off last week. You're in John chapter 12. We're working our way through the book of John. It's a wonderful study. Um, This in chapter 12 now really is the final week, right right smack dab in the middle, in the latter part of chapter 12 of the week, uh, where Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday. Uh, it could be Wednesday or so during this final week of his passion. And um, he is teaching. Um, we looked last week at his triumphal entry and how while the crowds were crying, Hosanna, uh, save us. It really was more of a save us from the Roman tyranny of our day. Um, cast off the Romans was really their call. Uh, it was kind of akin to, uh, hey, why don't you feed us another meal? Uh, give us what we need for the day, but we're really not interested in what you, who you are as uh, Jesus. Um, we're not really interested in you saving our souls. We're just more interested in what you can do for me today. And that was the attitude. Uh, there were some Greeks, you remember, who made the statement, we would see Jesus. We want to see him. We want to know more about him. Who is he? What is his miss- mission? What is he doing and uh, we looked and studied that last week. And really what, where we are is in, in chapter 12 is we're, we're going to see our Lord Jesus Christ's final invitation to Israel. And uh, if I were to give the message title this morning, there could be several. It could be God, uh, the Lord's final invitation or the Lord's final warning. You could also entitle it, The Day the Light Went Out. And uh, this really was a final warning for the, for the nation of Israel. You know, I think it's true for us today, too, that uh, we, ought, we ought to receive the light that God is entrusting into our care, that he's giving us while he is giving it. Because, as we'll see, unbelief really has two parts. There is the side of mankind, we have a role to play. We can choose to reject the message of the Lord. We can reject his word. We can even reject Jesus Christ as our personal savior. But there's another side to unbelief, and that is God's side. And when a person chooses to reject the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal savior, God can actually seal that decision of unbelief. 
not ever giving them light again. Allowing them to continue in their unbelief. And that is a form of very real judgment. The judgment of Almighty God. And that's where Israel was. And frankly, that's where the religious, Jewish religious leaders were at. They had been rejecting Jesus, rejecting his message, rejecting his person, rejecting what he did. They were enamored by his miracles. They were impressed by his power. I think they were even afraid of him to a certain degree because they knew that he had the ability to take away their power and their political power from them. So I think they were even scared of him to some degree. But ultimately, they rejected, rejected, rejected the light. And finally, there came a point where God said, I'm not going to give you any more light. And those men to whom rejecting the light they did, God sealing their decision, those men died and went to hell for all of eternity. I want you to look at our text, John chapter 12. I'll begin reading in verse number 35. John 12 and verse number 35. It says this, Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you, Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus, and departed, and did hide himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, Who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, and this is a wonderful statement in verse 42, Among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogues. synagogues. So for political purposes, for their reputation, though they believed upon the Lord, they would not confess him. They would not agree with him publicly for their own sake. Look at verse 43. Why? For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me and uh, believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. I am come, a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to the world to judge, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him, the word that I have spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. My question to you this morning is, What are you doing with the light that God has given to you? What are you you doing with the light that God has given to you? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we look at your word this morning. Thank you for safely bringing us here together. Lord, I believe you have in this room exactly the people uh, that you want to be here to hear your word. Father, I pray now that you would speak by your Holy Spirit and by your word. Give us understanding. Lord, I pray that you would soften hearts that are hard, soften stiff necks. Father, I pray that everyone in this room would receive the light that you are giving. Lord, thank you for that light. Give us more, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is the day, I could say it, when the light went out, at least for the nation of Israel. Now, I'm not saying that God had no more Nothing more for Israel. We know that's not true. The day of Pentecost would come not long after this. And what happened? 3,000 souls were saved on that day. Jewish souls, primarily. The church in Jerusalem was primarily made up of Jewish believers, okay? So it's not that God would not save anybody from the nation of Israel anymore. 
But in large part, God was setting aside Israel. They had fulfilled his purpose up to this point, and he was going to break them off, so to speak, as Romans chapter 11 talks about, and he was going to graft in a new branch, uh, Gentile believers, to fulfill his will. If you also read in Romans chapter 11, you'll find Paul saying that he himself was of Israel and that God would indeed save Israel. So it's very clear God has a plan for Israel. But up to this point, Israel had rejected the message. They had rejected the truth over and over and over again. The word of God came in the form of a man, Jesus. God in human flesh came to Israel. And John says he came unto his own and his own received him not. And so this, in a very real sense, is the day when the light went out. I want to notice, beginning in verse number 35, I want to notice God's final call, or Jesus' final call to the people of Israel. Look with me in verses 35 and 36. Again, he says this, Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. And of course, they didn't know it, but he was going to be crucified on Friday of this very week. And so it was a very little while, and he says to them, Walk while ye have the light. Take a step in the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. I can remember years ago when my wife and I were traveling in evangelism. Ian was just a little guy. And, um, and we were over in, in Ludington, Michigan. I was preaching at a church there. And, and, we were, and our home was the fifth-wheel travel trailer. We lived in it uh, basically uh, nine months out of every year. And it provided home for us. And I can remember that night, it was really windy. It was very stormy. I think there were some tornadoes in the area. And we, it was our very first week in the trailer. It was a little scary. And uh, Ian was in the other end of the trailer. I had brought the slide out in because I thought it would leak, which it would. And, uh, and that night, the power went out. There were no lights. And uh, even though I now know, and I didn't know that night, because I had battery power, I still had lights. But the lights were out. I didn't turn them on. And uh, so I wanted to go check on Ian at the other end of the trailer. And from the gooseneck where the master bedroom was down to the, where the bathroom was and then on to where Ian was, uh, there was quite a step. Well, this was our very first night in the trailer. It was pitch black, and I forgot about that step. Okay, No lights, couldn't see. And so I took a big step as I'm going to see my son the trailer's being buffeted by the wind, and I just forgot about the step. Well, let me tell you, when you miss a step like that, that big, I just went right over and landed right on my chest and stomach. Knocked the wind out of me. Cindy's saying, are you okay? You know, I mean, it knocked the wind right out of me. I couldn't see. It was dark. Okay. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, walk, take a step in the truth while you have the light. Why aren't you taking a step in the direction of truth? The Lord's revealing the truth to you, but you won't take a step. You're balking, like uh, the Apostle Paul, maybe, when Jesus asked him, why kickest thou against the pricks? Why are you... Why are you Why are you uh, uh, stubbornly planting your feet and seemingly having to be dragged along because you're so stubborn against the truth? And he speaks to these people and he says, Take a step, walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. Look at verse 36. While ye have light, believe in the light that ye may be the children of light. Because it's not always going to be here, this light. You're not always going to have the opportunity to understand the truth. You're not always going to have the opportunity to see clearly. By the way, when God gives you and I, you and me, clarity in life on a matter, make the right decision then while you have the light. Because there are times even within a a believer's life where you find yourself overwhelmed maybe by the sin of unbelief and maybe by hardships from without and 
doubting from within, and it's hard to discern what we should do, what decision we should make on a matter. Um, Don't doubt in the darkness what you knew to be true in the light. So when you have the light, when you know something, this is wrong, make the decision to do the right thing. Okay, That's on a more practical level. He's speaking very much doctrinally, but very practically too, because he is the one who's there. He is the light of the world, and they're rejecting the light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. So first of all, I noticed in verses 35 and 36, there's this final call. A final call. We're going to sing a hymn when we close the service later um, called God's Final Call. God doesn't have to, though he is very long-suffering, God does not owe you and me anything. He does not have to suffer any longer with, with mankind's rebellion. I think in our culture and in our time today, there is an exaltation of anger. I think I could say it that way. Or even this way, that anger in some way has become some sort of a noble, a noble thing. Every one of us has a temper. The fuse is just a little bit different between us, um, from each one of us. Um, and I think in our culture, somehow anger has become something noble, almost something that is right, or even something that is virtuous. Anger is often justified. We justify our anger, why we lose our temper. Uh, sometimes you may even say to your spouse, you made me. <laughs> okay. There are two in a, in a marriage relationship, but we tend to justify our anger. And I mean anger of a severe nature. And in our culture, it is very severe. It, anger that leads to vengeance and even to violence. And it all seems to be justified. Why? Because, well, you've offended me. And so I'm just... I'm justified to blow my top, lose my temper, maybe even destroy private property, or hurt someone else because someone, somewhere, offended me, said something about me. They, they, they belittle me. They don't think highly enough about me as they ought to think. And so that gives me the right, this is our culture thinking, It gives me the right to do whatever I want, to lash out in anger. And in our culture today, it's been legitimized. Hatred, a vicious kind of hostility, retaliation are being expressed all the time in our culture. And I'll tell you what anger is, this kind of anger that I'm talking about. Anger, in this way, as I'm speaking of it, is an expression of the wretched condition of the human heart. That's what it is. It's an expression of the wretched condition of the human heart. It's not, a, it's not just. It's not okay. Well, they were hurt. They were offended. No, anger, as I've described it to you this morning, is an expression of the condition of the human heart. And our society may see it as virtuous and may see it as some kind of a freedom of personal rights, but the truth of the matter is, this kind of anger is a fallen reaction, a corrupt reaction of the pride of our sinful natures. In fact, when we act like this, it's actually a demonstration of how unlike God we really are. Well, I've been offended. You know what they did? They they messed this up. They didn't do what I said. Recently, I had to gather all four of my children together into one room and say, hey, I need you to forgive your daddy. I was wrong for how I responded to you. They were all in the room. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And uh, they all, Tori let off, and she just came right over and put her arms around my neck and gave me a big hug. And it was like one big mass group hug. I say that to say this, we all struggle with reacting the wrong way in situations. You know what? I was offended because they hadn't obeyed me and what I told them to do. They offended me. They despised my word. They belittled what I had told them, and it offended me. 
how dare my children disobey me? Isn't it, isn't it awful, though? Do you see the pride there? See how wicked and nasty it is? And you see, we all, we all when, we, when we lose it like that, or lose our temper, or say something, and we all lose it in different ways, some are blower-uppers, some are simmerers, you know, whatever, wherever you are, some of you lash out, you know, you can just slice and dice, you know, they used to sell uh, like this special thing, this cho- you could just chop up the vegetables so fast, you know, some of you are like that, I can't remember the name, but that should be your nickname, you can just slice and dice people up, you've got a tongue that's amazing, in your mind, when you get angry, boy, look out everybody else in the room. You can lay everybody out. What are you looking at? You know, type of, that's you. But, but this anger, it comes out of pride. This anger is, is ungodly. It's not godly. It's the opposite of God. God is compassionate. He is forgiving. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's long-suffering. He's slow to anger, the Bible says. He's astonishingly patient. God is the one who's been offended by every, every sin. Every sin has offended him. God is offended by everyone all the time. God is offended in an incalculable way, in an inconceivable way beyond our comprehension. God is the one who's absolutely holy, who's never done anything wrong. He's the one who's offended by every violation of his word every violation of his law, of his nature, of his name. And that's what makes his patience so amazing. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17, you remember the Bible says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And Adam and Eve, what they do? They ate. They disobeyed God. And how long did Adam live after he disobeyed God's word and violated God's character? He lived 930 years. Now, God had said, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And they did. They died spiritually. Uh, Frankly, they deserved to die physically, too. But just to illustrate how long-suffering our God is when mankind sins against him, God let Adam live for 930 years. That's how long-suffering he is. Amazing how patient God is with sinners. God said, I'm going to destroy, destroy the world with a flood, but before the destruction came, God established a preacher by the name of Noah who was a preacher of righteousness, and he preached judgment, and he called people to, to repentance for 120 years. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 20 says, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. God is long-suffering. He suffers long with you and me. This is the patience of God. Waiting in the days of Noah, the patience of God. Even the psalmist, as he was filled by the Holy Spirit, questioned why God doesn't act against those who violate His Word and disobey Him and hurt His people. We know those psalms as imprecatory psalms. And the psalmist, filled with the Spirit of God, wrote down imprecatory psalms. And the psalms, those imprecatory psalms, call on God to judge the wicked, to punish the wicked, even to slay the wicked. And the psalmist always wants to uphold the glory of God and honor God's name and honor the Lord. And he wonders as he cries out in his worship, how, God, can you allow the wicked to prosper? How can you allow your name to be dishonored? How much longer will you put up with this, God? And so he prays for God's vengeance on his enemies. And the psalmist looked at the dire situation among his own people and how the enemies of God were encroaching from the outside. And he says, how long, Lord? How much longer, God? How can you be so patient when we look to the book of Revelation in the future, that future time called the Great Tribulation, when the judgment begins to be wrought by God in the world, and there are some people who are dying martyrs' deaths, and people who are suffering in, 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 in inconceivable ways, I think. And yet there are some people who have died because they love the Lord, and from heaven they cry out saying, How long, God? How long, Lord? How long will you allow these people to rebel against you? 
to take your name in vain, to reject the truth. It always seems that the judgment of God is delayed. Of course, Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that the forbearance and patience of God is actually meant to lead people to repentance. And you and I have experienced that, where we were doing the wrong thing. And frankly, God could have just responded. But instead, what has he done with you and me? What has he done? He's been patient. Sometimes he'll even allow us to go down that path for a while. And he'll bring guilt and shame, conviction of the Spirit of God, conviction of conscience into your life and the mine. He's holy, he's just, he's righteous. We've offended him. We knew better. And still, what has he done? He gives mercy. He suffers long with us. This is the patience and the mercy of God. In Psalm 78 and verse 38, it says this, But he, speaking of God, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. Many a time did he suffer long. Over and over and over and over and over again, even in our own lives. And that was true for the world for a thousand years before the flood. And it was true for Israel for centuries before the Babylonian captivity. For centuries, Israel had been rejecting the truth. For centuries, they'd been killing the prophets. For centuries, they've been saying no to the truth, the messengers of God. In Isaiah 48, verse 9, God says this to Israel, For my name's sake will I defer mine anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. What what does God mean by that? God has put his mercy his long-suffering, his grace, and his patience on display. God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace. He is long-suffering. He suffers long. But he will not suffer forever. And that is part of the message this morning. He will not suffer forever. And I noticed here in verses thirty. 5 and 36, that this is the final call. Apostasy. Israel is here at this point in John 12. They're characterized by apostasy and disobedience and idolatry and disrespect to God, dishonoring His name, blaspheming God. It was a way of life for them. They had rejected the truth and they were continuing to reject the truth, not just a man a prophet of God with a message from God, but now they were rejecting God in human flesh. They were God-rejectors. They liked life the way they had it organized. Oh, it included God. It included the temple. It included some of the things God had said to do, but they weren't going to go any further. They weren't going to walk in the light. They were God-rejectors. And finally, it came to an end. In 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 16, we read this, but they mocked the messengers of God. Think about that. They mocked the messengers of God. The man of God would speak, and you know what? They would laugh. What a fool. What a fool, this guy, to say these things. Now, think about this. God says, I know who you are. You mocked the men that I sent to you with my words. You mocked them. And you know what? Most of us in this room, we live in a different culture than they did in those days. I imagine that those people mocked these men outwardly. And of course, they would have mocked them inwardly as well. Our culture is a little bit different. And in this setting here, no one has ever mocked me preaching um, out loud. That's never happened. This setting, it would be very unusual. But it's possible to mock the messenger of God in our heart. These people mock the messenger of God. It says further that they despised his words. They belittled his words in their minds and their hearts and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. And the point is this, God has an end. There is an end to God's patience. And the end for the people of Israel came in the Babylonian hordes that came and massacred tens of thousands of Jews. And the ones who didn't die were carried off into captivity. 
And those who died, obviously, were sent to eternal destruction. And the text before us in John 12 is like the text in Chronicles. It's the final warning. God, God's patience has run out. He sent His only begotten Son into the world. Perfect, sinless, blameless, spotless, full of love, coming not to judge, but to give the truth, to seek and to save that which was lost, speaking of Israel specifically. And what happens? They reject Him. They mock Him. They're actually plotting to kill Him. We need to destroy the truth. That was the response. And so there's this final call. And Jesus, in this passage, his ministry, his earthly ministry is almost over. And he's telling them, you need to take advantage of the light while there's still light shining. You need to receive Jesus and become partaker of his nature. You need a new nature. You need to be born again because your old nature is defiled and it's full of sin. And it's destined for hell for all of eternity and you will deserve that. But you can have a new nature. You can have a new life. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can be made the righteousness of God in Christ. That can be you. And that was the message that Jesus was giving them, but he's saying the light is going to soon be withdrawn, and you're not going to know the way you need to go, and you're going to stumble along in darkness. And the Jews would stumble, you remember, into war with Rome, and they would stumble into rebellions. And they would stumble along in the ever-expanding darkness of the Jewish law. They still stumble along in unbelief in our day, and they will continue to stumble along all the way into the arms of the Antichrist someday. And they will welcome him with open arms. And Jesus really is giving them a final warning. He's saying, you need to receive the light. I'm the light of the world, Jesus was saying. You need to receive the light. There's a second truth I noticed in this passage. Not only do I see his final call, but also I see the fatality of unbelief. The fatality of unbelief. Look at verse number 37. I want to read down through verse 41. It says, But though he had done so many miracles before them, John writes, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Look again at verse number 37, the beginning part. It says that Jesus had done so many miracles before them. And yet at the end of verse 37, it says, Yet they believed not on him. And there is a fatality of unbelief. There's a final warning, but also the fatality of unbelief. Now, John only records eight miracles. In all the, the whole entire gospel, according to John, there's only eight miracles that John records. Um, you remember Jesus turning the water into wine in chapter 2? How about him healing a dying man in chapter 4? He cures the paralyzed man in chapter 5. We've studied these things out. He creates food for thousands of people in chapter 6. He walks on the water at the end of chapter 6, and he gives sight to the blind in chapter 9. He raises a man from the dead, Lazarus, who'd been dead for four days in chapter 11. And he creates a meal out of nothing in chapter 21. And then, of course, there's the miracle of all miracles, Jesus himself, having been crucified, actually raises from the dead. That's a miracle. And so you have these miracle signs that John has record, recorded for us, but there's only eight of them. And I should remind you that in John 20 and verse 30 it says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. John says, I've only recorded a few, frankly, out of all the ones that Jesus did. He did many, many more miracles that I've not recorded for you. In fact, in John chapter 21 and verse 25, the Bible says, 
And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen, he says. In other words, Jesus did so many miracles in the lives of so many people. I've only recorded a handful, frankly. A couple handfuls, but there were so many other miracles that his disciples saw, they witnessed. But frankly, even beyond that, even more than what we could take in, all the things that Jesus did in the lives of people, he did so many miracles in a three-year period that all the books of the entire world could not contain or could not record all the miracles that Jesus did. He did so many signs. He did so many miracles that they couldn't contain the details of all of them. And how had Israel responded to this incredible display of the power and the love and the grace of God? How had Israel responded to this this supernatural, the incredible? How had they responded to Jesus? And the answer is that the majority of Israel had rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. The great majority of them said, we don't want you. We don't want you. Not who you are. Oh, they were enamored with his miracles. Remember, thousands of people clamoring to be close to him to see what he's going to do. They were enamored uh, by his power. They are amazed by his works, sure, but they rejected his word. They rejected his teaching. I think a great illustration for that is when he feeds the 5,000 on one side of the Sea of Galilee, goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Many people show up there. They want to know what's for lunch. And Jesus is teaching them, and they say, these are hard sayings. He's saying, you don't need physical bread. And they're saying, my stomach says I do. My stomach, I know what I want. I know what I need. And and you're telling me I don't need physical bread. And he says, I'm the bread of life. Eat of me. Believe in me. And they're they're so consumed with their stomach and their physical needs, they say, what do they say? These are hard sayings. And they walk away and they leave him. They didn't want him. They didn't love him. They didn't want him as the the way, the truth, and the life. They wanted to get to God their own way, and they were confident that they could. And they looked at Jesus as getting in the way of their lives, and they didn't want him. How did they respond to their Messiah? They rejected him outright. That's what they did. They did not believe upon him. And I really think there are two specific components of unbelief. I mentioned them briefly earlier, but let's look at them in the text. There are two specific components of unbelief. And and what are they? Well, the first is, the first component of unbelief is mankind's stubborn, ongoing rejection of Jesus. Mankind has the ability to stubbornly reject the truth. Now, that was true for the people of Israel, And that's true for you and for me, by the way. And most of us here this morning have received the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Heaven is our home. We're in no danger of death or hell in that sense. Um, But even those of us who are saved can stubbornly persist in disobedience to the truth. We can defend our behavior. We can defend our thoughts. We can defend the way we live, what we do. And God gives us this. He has given us so much, and he's made us stewards of so many things. Circumstances that he puts us in, he gives us the opportunity to respond to those circumstances. How are we going to respond? And by the way, within this room, there are multiplied differences within this room of circumstances that each of us are facing. Some men are facing difficulty in the workplace and other men are not. It's a joy to go to work. Some men have wonderful, coming home is is bliss. It's wonderful. It's a haven to come home. But for other men in this room, it's not blissful. It's not a haven. It's like, can I go back to work? Nobody moved. Okay? 
Same could be true said for the ladies, for the women in this room. There are young people in this room, and you know what? Things at school are great. Academics for you is just a breeze. It's not hardly an issue at all. You hardly have to study, and you do great. You know, you bring home all those A's every quarter to your parents, and they're just like, oh, son, you make me so proud with all these great grades. Others of you in this room, you have to work really hard at grades. Some of you aren't working at all at grades. Okay? So, and there are so many different, so many other different scenarios we could go through. Sicknesses. Loss of loved ones. You know, I talk about coming home to a loved one. And coming home and it being a place of bliss and a haven. And yet there are many in in our congregation this year who have said goodbye to their, their spouse for the last time this year. Many this year. There's no going home to them ever again. And the hardship and the grief that comes with that. So, how are you responding to what it is that God has put in your life? Are you responding submissively to the Lord, obediently to Him? Because you and I have the, there's two sides of unbelief. One is, I can stubbornly reject Christ. And the other part, uh, the other component of unbelief is that God responds to our unbelief. Or he, I could say it this way, responds to our disobedience. Now here's the thing. You and I, we're pretty small. We're small. The psalmist said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? God, I'm so insignificant. I'm not even sure why you think about me at all. Like, I know you know I'm here. I know you know the number of hairs on my head. I know you know everything about me and that you love me and your thoughts toward me are more than can be numbered. Lord, you think about me that much, but God, frankly, I am a nobody. That's us. Somebody to God, but nobodies. Okay? Wonderful. God, on the other hand, is sovereign. I say it this way. Sovereignty, the sovereignty of God is could be defined this way. He has the authority and the right to do what he wants with what belongs to him. He has the right to do what he wants with what belongs to him. And everything belongs to him. And when you and I respond to something in unbelief, God, because he is sovereign, because he has the right to, He responds to our unbelief. Now, as I've already made, I've taken a lot of time to make emphasis of, in contrast to the anger and the self-will that we see on display in our country and even in our lives, our response, our being offended and lashing out in anger, I've, I've taken much time to prove to you from the Word of God that God is not like us. He is long-suffering. He is patient. He uh, um, he is merciful and gracious, okay? He is long-suffering. He suffers long. But there comes a point where his patience runs out. And you know what? He determines when that is, and he never makes any mistake. He might give some one individual a little bit more time, but another individual, knowing their heart, he gives them less time to respond. But God responds to our unbelief. Now look at the passage, and notice, first of all, our stubborn, ongoing rejection of Jesus. And I see it specifically in the lives of these religious Jews. Look at verse number 37. Verse number 37, the latter part. Verse 37 says, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Um, and, and even though he's done all of these miracles, they are deliberately rejecting him. They are persistently, the verbiage in the passage there in verse number 37 where it says, yet they believed not on him. It wasn't just a one time uh, 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 Jesus preached a message and they sat there, they were a little distracted, you know, they didn't get a lot of sleep the night before, they missed a bunch of stuff. And the message was given, the invitation was given, and whoops, I missed something. Whoop, I, I didn't believe. Whoop, did I miss my opportunity? No, no, that wasn't what they were doing. They were persisting in their rejection of Jesus. They were persistent. He would speak, he would give truth, and they consistently said no to him. They consistently and persistently 
said no to him. Stubbornly, they did everything they could to destroy the credentials of Jesus. Now, nobody in this room that I know of has done anything openly to destroy Jesus. No one in this room that I know of has ever said bad things about Jesus. Most of us in this room have probably never said outwardly and openly to anyone, I don't believe in Jesus. Now, I imagine there are some in this room who have said that. But I know that all of us, at different times in our lives, when the truth has been given to us, on a certain area of our lives, have been stubborn or persisted in our disobedience even when the light of the Word of God was given. And that's the warning. Don't continue to persistently and stubbornly reject the truth. You know, the the ministry of Jesus on earth, his earthly ministry was extraordinary. It was incredible. It was like nothing this world has ever seen. It was, it's almost, I think it's beyond our ability to grasp and fathom how incredible Jesus' ministry was. He performed miracle after miracle, day after day. He demonstrated his deity in countless ways. He showed his power over the forces of nature. He tells the storm to stop. Who does that? Peace, be still. None of us have that that ability. He he demonstrated his power over all kinds of sickness and disability. Guy hasn't been able to see his entire life. Spit and mud. Go home and try it. You and I can't do anything with that. Jesus makes a man who hasn't been able to see his entire life to see. A man who hasn't been able to walk, to walk. He shows up at a, a man after a man has been dead four days and buried four days. Jesus shows up and he says, roll the stone away. And Martha says, whoa, whoa, by now he stinketh, Lord. Now, you could have, but not now. Jesus says, roll the stone away. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out of the tomb. Jesus, the one who created heavens and, and all, the heavens and the earth in six days by the words of his mouth. I struggle with the words of my mouth to even get my children to obey, to mix the chocolate with the milk for chocolate milk. That's the amount of power I've got with my words. Jesus spoke in heavens and earth, and scientists to this day scramble to try to comprehend the complexity of this world and this universe. Telescopes are developed, further reaching, reaching out even... Oh, it turns out stars do make noise. There's other galaxies. We can't count them all. He spoke them into existence. He displayed all kinds of power over evil spirits and even death itself, but in the face of the undeniable truth, they willfully chose to reject and they tried to even cover up the evidence. What what am I talking about here? We're talking about the the fatality of unbelief. What we see on display here is this stubborn, ongoing rejection of Jesus. Look back to chapter 3 for just a moment in John. Chapter 3, look back to verse number 1. And I want you to see this because, you know, we're, we're reading the gospel of Jesus according to John. And we'd say, well, of course, John says these things. But what about, what about the people who rejected him? I mean, they had something else to say, right? They didn't believe. You're right, they didn't believe, but they, they, they could not deny the power of God in Jesus' life. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. And here we have Nicodemus before he was saved. And he's a Pharisee, very religious man. Look what he says in verse 1. Therefore, was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler uh, of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, teacher, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. 
Nicodemus was unsaved in, in, in the first couple, in chapter 3 of John. Unsaved. He was not a believer in Jesus. But he speaks for himself in this passage and for the other religious leaders who denied Jesus, who didn't believe in him as God, didn't believe in him as the Messiah. Nicodemus, as an unsaved man, says, we know you've come from God because no man can do these miracles unless God be doing it. We know this. This is an unsaved man. No one ever denied his miracles. They were undeniable. Look back, if you would, I think it's chapter 11. Go there. John chapter 11. I want you to look at another passage just briefly. John chapter 11. Look at verse 47. John chapter 11. Look at verse 47 and 48. So he's raised Lazarus from the dead already. And then look at verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests, we're in chapter 11, verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? What are we going to do? For this man doeth many miracles. Now these are the unsaved, religious, Jewish leaders who who hated Jesus. And they've got a problem on their hands. What are we going to do? Because he's doing all these miracles. They didn't deny them. It wasn't a matter of... Uh, he's a really good um, magician. He's a trickster. No, they didn't. They didn't. They knew that wasn't the case. He was legitimately doing miracles. Look at verse forty-eight. They say, "If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and the nation." So, what are they concerned about? They're concerned about themselves, their power. And they say, what are we going to do? We've got to do something with this man, Jesus. He's doing all these miracles. And if we don't do anything, everybody's going to believe in him. Because why? His miracles are undeniable. His power is unbelievable. Nobody's like him. Everybody's going to believe on him. So I say that to say this. He came unto his own in his power. He came unto his own doing miracles and signs, undeniable signs. They knew he was of God, and they rejected him anyway. Unbelief has two parts. Part one is the stubborn, ongoing rejection of Christ. Can I ask you before we go on to the second part, second component of unbelief, can I ask you this morning, are you receiving the truth, the light that the Lord is giving to you in your life? What are you doing with the light? What are you doing with the light? Are you receiving the truth? Or are you rejecting stubbornly, in pride, arrogantly the truth? I don't, I'm not going to believe that. He came unto his own, and he basically said, I'm the bread of life. Not basically, he said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the water of life. Drink. Eat. It is the salva- it'll be to the salvation of your soul. Believe upon me. And many did. And many stubbornly rejected him. Second component of unbelief is the sovereign response of God. Look at verse number 38. Verse 38 in chapter 12. He says that the saying of Isaiah, John writes the prophet might be fulfilled. And he quotes from Isaiah 53 in verse 1, where Isaiah the prophet, hundreds of years earlier, said this, Who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the the arm of the Lord been revealed? In Psalm Psalm 8 in verse 3, it says that the heavens were merely the works of God's fingers. In Exodus 32, it tells us that God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt, over a million people out of Egypt, out of the slavery and bondage of Egypt, was the work of his mighty hand. And in contrast to the works of God's fingers, you know, just the works of his fingers, um, the sun, the stars, the moon, just the works of his fingers, the deliverance of Israel with his mighty hand. In contrast to those miracles, 
John records, and Isaiah had prophesied, that Jesus would be the demonstration of God's arm. In other words, you have the works of God's fingers, you have the work of his hand, delivering Israel, but then you have the demonstration, you want more power than that? It would be the Messiah coming. That's what Jesus was. Great power, great glory. But the Jews had dismissed the mighty working of God. Look at verse 39 in our text. Therefore, they could not believe because that Isaiah said again, and he quotes now from chapter 6 of Isaiah, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. You know, when a person starts to resist the light, something begins to change within that person. And he comes to the place, ultimately, if he persists in his unbelief, that person will come to the place where he cannot believe. Do you hear me? Now, he's speaking primarily to folks who are unsaved. Specifically, he's speaking to people who are unsaved. And by the way, mom and dad... And all four of my children have professed, they have made professions of faith in Christ. It is not our role as parents to give our children assurance of their salvation. Talk to them about what the Bible says. If they're doubting it, go back to Scripture. Don't go back and say, well, you prayed a prayer when you were five. When your son or your daughter stands before the Lord Jesus Christ someday, God Almighty, he's not going to say, oh, where's your mom? Or where's your dad to help me with my decision? The decision will be made. It will be done. For a person to be saved from death and hell and from sin today requires that a person believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We would like to solace ourselves and comfort ourselves as parents with, well, you know what? They prayed a prayer. And you know what? I think we'd be better off just to go home and cry and cry and cry and say, oh, God, I don't know about my son. I don't know about my daughter. I'm not seeing any any evidence in their life at all that they love you or love your word. God, would you please be merciful to them? God, would you please suffer long with them? God, help me to know what I ought to say and when I ought to say it and what I shouldn't say. You see what I'm saying? Let's be honest. But there's something that happens to a person who begins to resist the light. There's something that begins to change within them and ultimately they come to the place where they cannot believe. Now, God gives people the privilege of believing, of choosing. But ultimately, He is the one. He is the one who says, you will not have any more opportunity. I've given you the light. You've rejected the light. And he quotes from Isaiah there in verse verse number 40, He, God, hath blinded their eyes. God hath hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. I've given you the light. You have said no to me so many times. And now I'm making a decision for you. You will not have the opportunity anymore. This is a scary thing, frankly. God permits spiritual blindness to come upon the people who do not take the truth seriously. I don't have time, but we could go to Matthew chapter 13, and Jesus says the same thing. And again, in Mark chapter 4, in Acts chapter 28, it's said again in Romans chapter 11. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 11 just briefly. The the same thing is being said. Romans chapter 11 verse 8 says this, According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear. Unto this day, Paul talks about the, the nation of Israel. Why? Because they would not believe. And God made it so that they could not believe. This is his judgment. 
This is the judgment of Almighty God. And I tell you again, as we might sit here and say, well, how, how dare He? How could God do that? He is sovereign. He has the right to do what He wants with what belongs to Him. And by the way, do not miss it. He's responding. God is responding to the unbelief, the rejection of Himself. The long-suffering God of heaven and earth is responding to the hatred and unbelief of Christ rejecting people. Do you remember Pharaoh in Egypt? Do you remember how the Bible says God hardened his heart? Do you remember that? But before the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Ten times Pharaoh hardened his heart. And ten times the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart in response to Pharaoh's hardening of his own heart. I think that's a wonderful illustration. Pharaoh said, nope, I'm not going to receive the message. I'm not going to receive the messenger. I'm not going to believe in the one true God, Jehovah. I've got my own gods. I myself, to some degree, as a Pharaoh would have thought himself to be a God himself, some sort of deity. I'm not going to respond in humility to the one true God. He hardened his heart. Finally, God said, okay. I will make, I, in response to your unbelief, will judge you, and you will not have an opportunity to repent. It's a terrifying truth. God hardened Pharaoh's heart so he couldn't repent, and his decision was rejecting the truth. Isaiah 55 and verse 6 says this, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call call ye upon him while he is near. You know, we live in this day where we think every, you know, today, what is it? It's snowy, the, the snow is melting, the roads will be clear on the way home, we'll eat lunch. Today's Sunday, some kids, we got school tomorrow, work tomorrow. What are we going to do this week? What are we going to do next week? My family's making plans to go out to Pennsylvania over Christmas, you know, and we all made plans for Thanksgiving. We know we control our destiny, and we know what we're doing, make plans for life. Like, this is always going to continue. Hasn't God made it clear to us enough recently that tomorrow is not guaranteed? That we know not what shall be on the morrow? We don't know what tomorrow will bring forth. Has that not been made obvious enough to us in recent days? Would we not just put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord. And he, God, will have mercy upon him. For he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ while you can. Notice finally that there's a consequence of unbelief. Look at verses 42 and 43. It says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. Because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praises, the praise of God. Wow. So many religious leaders did believe. I think amongst this group, there might have been a man named Nicodemus. Maybe a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. who after they saw what the Sanhedrin did to Jesus, finally said, you know what, we don't care. We believe in him, and it doesn't matter. It'll, we'll be public about it. But for a while, they were closet Christians, so to speak, hiding. Not going to boldly follow the Lord Jesus. And I, I think there were others beside those men, and those men might have been in this group. But you know, I, I can't help but thinking as they some of the consequences of their lack of faith and trust in Jesus, I can't help but wonder what they might have missed. I wonder if they'd been in the upper room with Jesus the night that he was betrayed. 
I wonder what conversations they could have had with him and the things that he, they could have learned from the Lord in human flesh talking to them. They would have lost their status in the world, but if they had publicly confessed their faith in Jesus. But they would have enjoyed being a co-laborer with Jesus during his most difficult and trying times. They would, have had, they would have enjoyed sweet fellowship with Jesus and his comforting and strengthening them. And frankly, these men traded sweet fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ for temporal acceptance, temporal position, and temporal reputation. Don't, don't be a closet Christian. He's worthy. Follow him. Look at verse number 44. Judgment in darkness. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me believe, believeth not on me, but, to him that, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Those who do not believe in Jesus will abide in eternal darkness, a place called hell, eternal torment. Verse 47. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me, that word rejecteth has the idea of continuous or to count as nothing. To count as nothing. He that counts me, Jesus, as nothing and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. In other words, the person who has rejected Jesus will actually be judged by Jesus' words. You won't be judged by your rules for your life. Well, I measured up to what I thought was okay. You're not going to be judged by that. You're going to be held accountable by his standard, by the Lord Jesus Christ. When we were in Ireland, when I was in Ireland as a teenager... They, they drive on the wrong side of the road in Ireland. Let's say I were driving in Ireland, but I was driving on the right side of the road. They were driving on the wrong side of the road. There'd be problems. And let's say I cause an accident, and I go before the judge, and they say, what were you doing driving on the wrong side of the road? We told you what side of the road to, to drive on. And I say, well, you know what? I'm an American. I drive on whatever. No, I mean the right side of the road. And you know what they would do? They would fine me or imprison me or I would pay the price. Why? Because they had broken their law, right? I wouldn't have the right to go in there and say, well, I, I live my life by my own set of laws. And you're not going to have that opportunity when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ someday. Well, I drove on the other side of the road because I thought it was fine. You're not going to have that opportunity. You're going to be judged according to Jesus' words. What he said. He says, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that this commandment is, ever, is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. These are the last words of Jesus to the nation of Israel. There's a final call. There's the fatality of unbelief, and there's the consequences of unbelief. As we've studied these 12 chapters up this period of time in our study, we've seen Jesus Christ in his life, in his ministry, his miracles, his message, his desire to save sinners. We've considered the evidence. I guess I'll end with this. Have you come to the conviction that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God? You believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. You believe that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. You believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross for sinners. Sinners like me. Sinners like you. Sinners. And that whosoever believeth upon him shall have everlasting life. In verse 36, he says, While ye have the light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. Are you a child of darkness? You walk in darkness. You live in darkness. Your thoughts are dark. Everything about you is dark. Jesus says, come to the light. I'm the light. Believe upon the light. With every head bowed and every